Well, good morning to y'all. Good to see you. Hey, it's good to be back with you. I'm so grateful for uh, Dick Kane two weeks ago who filled in for me on short notice. I had uh, what we call grandparents' disease. You get it from your grandchildren. Man, I had a bug. Ooh, it was something else. I've, uh, I, I cleaned myself out inside, just everything out, purged. All the wickedness was gone. Lots of fun. And then Dave Bowen last week, uh, you know that I'm on the Gospel Coalition Council, and we had our conference in Orlando last week, so we were down there for that and the board meeting. So uh, glad to be back and looking at Second Samuel chapter 23. And, of course, last week you studied that wonderful song of deliverance in chapter 22 as David led, led us through that, this wonderful summarizing statement of David of how God had been good to him and now in chapter 23, we come to David's last words. And you know, last words are important. Uh, Frank Sinatra, when he was dying, said, I'm losing it. Uh, and uh, Winston Churchill said, I'm bored with it all. <laughs> that was the last thing he said. So he died bored. Uh, I don't think he's died bored after he died, but he was bored when he was dying. And uh, so you have all these, these famous statements. Benjamin Franklin, for example, when he was dying, his daughter said, Daddy, roll over and it'll be, you'll, you'll breathe more easily. And he said, darling, when you're dying, nothing's easy. <laughs> and that was the last thing he said. Uh, so here we're going to get the last words of David. Now, some would debate, are these really his last words? Because if you turn over to Second Kings chapter 2, you'll see that he gives some instructions to his son Solomon before Solomon becomes king, including, and I think his last words were, Kill that rascal Shimei. <laughs> you know, take him down to Sheol with a bloody head. Uh, but these are his official last words. Kings, I guess, have the right to think way ahead of time about what their last words are going to be and then to deliver them. Uh, however it happened, these are David's last words. This is what he considered to be his last instruction uh, to the people of God. So obviously, it's extremely important for us. And we're going to see that it's about leadership. It's amazing that David would touch on this. I mean, David himself was a famous leader. But you don't have to be a famous leader in order to put these words into practice. The fact is that every single man here is a leader, and every single man here is supposed to be a leader. Uh, you're a leader in your home. You're a leader in your community. You're a leader in your church, if you belong to a church. You're a leader in your business. And as we grow and develop, we should be taking on more and more leadership responsibilities. And that's what, it, that's what it means. We lay down our life for our country. We lay down our life for the Lord. We lay down our life for our wives. We lay down our lives for people. So we take on more and more burdens. We lead uh, other people. And also, uh, you've, you've noticed by the time you're in the second grade, you're a leader because the first graders think you're cool and you're influencing people. So everybody is influencing a bunch of people. We've got to take responsibility for that. David gives us some fabulous advice today on that with his last words. I've told you before, I, I remember my own dad's last words. And uh, basically, I've told you before, my dad was kind of a, a, a Martin Luther Christian. He loved to tell rough jokes, and, and <laughs> he, was, uh, he wasn't what I would call a, a consistently deeply spiritually minded man, but he was a believer. And so it was, a, it was not usual for him to be giving me profound spiritual advice, but when, at his death he did, and he just simply said, put Christ first. That was the last thing my dad ever told me. And obviously I remember it has great weight when it's last words, and these are David's last words, and 
we ought to listen to them very carefully. Well, let's look at 2 Samuel 23. We'll look at verses 1 through 7. You know, sometimes we cover three and four chapters at a time. This time we're taking seven verses. Do you think we can handle that in an hour? I believe we can. Let's give it our best shot. Verse 1. Now, these are the last words of David. The oracle of David, the son of Jesse, the oracle of the man who was raised on high, the anointed of the God of Jacob, the sweet psalmist of Israel. The Spirit of the Lord speaks by me. His word is on my tongue. The God of Israel has spoken. The rock of Israel has said to me, when one rules justly over men, ruling in the fear of God, He dawns on them like the morning light, like the sun shining forth on a cloudless morning, like rain that makes grass to sprout from the earth. For does not my house stand so with God? For He has made with me an everlasting covenant, ordered in all things and secure. For will He not cause to prosper all my help and my desire? But worthless men are like thorns that are thrown away, For they cannot be taken with the hand. But the man who touches them arms himself with iron and the shaft of a spear. And they are utterly consumed with fire. Okay, let's notice in verses 1, 2, and the first half of 3 that these words are weighty. These words are weighty. Why are they weighty? Well, as we've already mentioned, they are last words. These are the last words of David. Of course, in in the Scriptures, I've listed, listed a few places there where you get other last words. Uh, you get uh, Jacob's last words in Genesis 49 where he uh, blesses each of his sons. You get Joseph's last words before he dies in Genesis chapter 50. You get certainly Moses with a whole extension of three chapters there where he's giving these last words to the people of Israel from Mount Nebo before he dies and before they cross into the Holy Land. Of course, Paul's last letter is 2 Timothy, and that's his last will and testament, as it were, to Timothy. And Paul is simply saying, Timothy, guard the gospel that I've given to you. Guard it, proclaim it, make it known, teach it in season and out. Guard the good deposit. And a very, very powerful letter, 2 Timothy, that Paul writes to his son in the faith. And then, of course, I mentioned Jesus' last words. And you have a couple of versions of this, but certainly one of them is Matthew 28, where he says, All authority in heaven and earth has been given to me, therefore go and make disciples of all nations. So his last words to us have rung through the 2,000 years, and we still hear them in our hearts and minds. We are to go into all the world and make disciples. So David's words are weighty because they are last words. Secondly... They're David's last words. They're David's words. And David is a remarkable person. Obviously one of the key people in the Scriptures. When you see Paul quoting uh, certain Old Testament figures in Romans that we'll study beginning next September. Uh, We'll take maybe a year and a half to get through Romans. But we'll look and see that that Paul himself quotes David. And uh, Peter on Pentecost quotes David. David is a remarkable figure in the Old Testament, a seminal figure, a key figure for us even to understand the meaning of Jesus Christ. But notice how David introduces himself here. First of all, he calls himself the son of Jesse, which is to say he's a common man. 
He wasn't even the first son or the second son or the fourth son of Jesse. He was way on down the line, the son of Jesse. And you remember that when uh, David first makes himself known as a, this budding shepherd warrior, uh, King Saul says, who is that kid? And someone says, I don't know. And they fish around, oh, he's the son of Jesse. Who's Jesse? I mean, David was basically a commoner. He, he was a nobody. He was an unknown. He was, he was the, the runt of the litter in a very uh, little-known family in Judah. That's who he was. And David's basically saying, I'm the son of Jesse. What's that? Nothing. We all need to remember where we came from. And uh, when, when we think about what God has done in our lives and for our lives, it's very helpful to go back and think, yes, you were a brand plucked out of the fire. Uh, you were one who was saved uh, from uh, the opposite direction in which you were headed. You were one who had no claim on God or on anything. You had no inheritance, really. Now God has given you uh, the cosmos. Let's remember where we came from. David never forgot, and Paul never forgot his background. Paul said, I'm the worst of all the sinners. I'm the chief of sinners. Because Paul was killing people because they're Christians. It doesn't get much worse than that. So one way in which we magnify the grace of God is to open our minds and remember what we are by nature, where we were headed without Him, what we would be like without the grace of God. David never forgot. Paul never forgot. We should never forget. But secondly, look at what else David says. He says, the oracle of the man who was raised on high. In other words, he is an exalted man. He was exalted there by God. Like a friend of mine said, uh, being a child of God is like being a turtle on a fence post. If you ever see a turtle on a fence post, you know the turtle didn't get there by itself. Somebody had to put it there. You're a turtle on a fence post. You were put up high, and there's no way you could have crawled up there. You've been made a son of the living God. You've been exalted to be a prince in Israel. You, through faith in Jesus Christ. We should never forget that God has lifted us up. And sometimes David felt like he was really down. He was being chased. He was hiding in caves. He was fleeing for his life. And he had all kinds of troubles and afflictions, but he never forgot that the Lord is the one who lifted him up. And one day, brothers, we're going to see it. Your real identity is going to be disclosed. When Jesus Christ comes back in His glory, He is going to glorify you and your real identity as an exalted man will be known to all flesh and to all the host of heaven. So don't forget it. Yes, we're common men. We're sinners, but we are exalted by the grace of God. Thirdly, see how David identifies himself. He is an anointed man. He says, the anointed of the God of Jacob. Now, David was anointed in a couple of senses. Obviously, he was anointed with oil by Samuel to be the king. And kings were anointed. Prophets were anointed. Priests were anointed. Here, David obviously is a king, but he's also acting like a prophet because the Lord is speaking through him, as we shall see in a moment. But he is anointed by the oil of the prophet to be the king in Israel. But David's anointed in another sense. He's anointed with the Holy Spirit. And that's exactly the way that you and I are anointed. And the word anointed, you know, is Mashiach, from which we get Messiah, the anointed one. So David's saying, I'm Messiah in that sense. I'm anointed one. I've been anointed by God. And John says in his first epistle that ultimately you need no man to teach you because you have the anointing. 
You have the anointing from God. God, the Holy Spirit, is ultimately your teacher. And yes, of course, He uses your parents. He uses teachers and coaches and pastors and others to help teach. And we take that seriously. We do learn from other people. But ultimately, God says, I'm your teacher. And He gives you the anointing. And you must trust Him. Look to Him. When you're looking at a text of Scripture and you don't understand it, of course you're going to research and read your footnotes and your introductions in the ESV study Bible. And you're going to pull out other books from other libraries and so on. But gentlemen, don't forget to ask Him. Ask Him to enlighten your mind and help you to see the truth of these things because He is ultimately your teacher. He's anointed you. And, of course, that's what, means, what Christian means, little anointed ones. And David says, look, I've been anointed by the God of Jacob. Now, isn't it interesting how he identifies not just himself, but how he identifies God? God is the God of Jacob. David found that very comforting that God is the God of Jacob. Why? Because of who Jacob was. Jacob was a deceiver. He was a rebel. He was a sinner. He was a liar. And David knew himself to be a dirty, rotten sinner. And we've gone through his life now, and you know that David's not exaggerating. David sinned big. David led big, and David sinned big. And it often happens that the more responsibility you get, uh, the greater your sins are when you commit them. And David's were certainly that way. And he said, I've been anointed by the God of deceivers, the God who loves sinners, the God who saves people like Jacob and people like me. Don't ever forget who God is. He's the God of all grace toward people like you and me. I'm grateful for that. I'm so glad David put it that way, that I am anointed of the God of Jacob. But then David also acknowledges his own gifting. He's a gifted man, and he knew it. The sweet psalmist or the sweet singer of Israel. David was a poet. He was a musician. He was a writer. He was an amazing, amazingly brilliant human being. So God had eminently gifted him, and David knew it. And David took his place, and he committed his gifts to the Lord. He didn't hide his gifts. He brought out his talents and used them. And in this room are amazing gifts. And sometimes we're a little slow to acknowledge them. Maybe it's false humility. Maybe it's because we don't want to be responsible for using the gifts that we've been given. But David took responsibility for what he was given. He was given the gift of poetry and the gift of music, and he used it. He used it in worship, and he used it to inspire other people. Uh, He used it to satisfy his own soul. And it was through music that David was often able to minister to other people without a word. He could just simply play the lyre, Uh, not L-I-A-R, but L-Y-R-E. He could play the lyre, and Saul, even wicked Saul, would be consoled and be calm. Uh, And David used his gifts for the kingdom of God. So here we are. These are David's words. We ought to take them seriously because they're David's words and because they're last words. But notice, thirdly, that they're also God's words. And this is the most important of all. And David is quite aware that he is speaking God's words. You find that Paul was aware that he was speaking God's word. Peter was aware that he was speaking God's word. Jesus was aware. These ones who have been inspired by God show us on various occasions that they are self-aware of the Holy Spirit speaking through them. 
David is clearly aware of it here. He is saying, my words are God's words. The great St. Augustine, one of the great doctors or teachers of the church in the 4th century, uh, summed up Scripture this, this way. He says, what Scripture says, God says. And gentlemen, I suggest you just make that your view of the Bible. It's a great, great way to summarize it. What Scripture says, God says. One of the best statements ever made, I think, outside of the Scriptures themselves, on what the Scripture is. Or as J.I. Packer put it one time, Scripture is simply God preaching, God speaking to us in the Scriptures. David was aware that these are God's words. He says, the Spirit of the Lord speaks by me. His word is on my tongue. The God of Israel has spoken. The rock of Israel has said this to me. So before he tells us what God has said to him, he makes it clear that what he's saying to us, God has said to him. I've put several texts there. Matthew 22, Acts chapter 1, chapter 2, chapter 4, Hebrews 4, where the apostles also understood, and Jesus understood, that David's words were God's word, that God was speaking through David. So David was not only king, but he was being used also as a prophet. Now this is extremely important for us to understand because the Bible has come under renewed attack and it's almost been parallel with the new atheist movement of the past 10-15 years where it's been very popular to just take, make a frontal attack upon God and His Word in public. Uh, the Richard Dawkins and Chris, late Christopher Hitchens and Sam Harris and others, uh, the, the well-known new atheists, who not only call the Bible unreliable and no greater than any other religious text, but actually now are calling the Bible immoral. For the first time in my life that I've, I've heard this kind of attack, it's much more vicious much more outspoken than it was back in the 70s when we had the so-called battle for the Bible, if you remember. Uh, but it's been about 40 years since it's come to the surface again in a, in a renewed uh, resurgence of strength, and it's really out there now. The Bible is being seriously attacked. You and I have to keep going back to the Bible to find out what the Bible says about itself. And I suggest to you that the word inerrant is a good word. Some complain that it's not a good word, it's a negative word, and it's not found in the Bible. Well, I just always say to people, well, try this word, perfect. That one's in the Bible. Uh, David, David said in Psalm 19, the, word, the law of the Lord is perfect. That was David's view, and that's the Bible's view. It's perfect. What does that mean? Without error. So inerrant, whichever one you prefer. But the Bible is perfectly true, and the Bible is the ultimate authority, and the Bible alone is the ultimate authority. Jesus said, my word shall never pass away. And he says about the Old Testament that every jot, every tittle will not pass away until the end. And he says the righteous are those who keep every jot, every little hook on a letter. Not just a word, a letter. And so he, that's the teaching that he gives us about how we're to approach the Bible. Uh, there are all kinds of questions that are being asked about the Bible uh, these days as renewed this renewed assault uh, uh, kind of summarizes every, all the wicked things that have been said in the past, beginning with the issue of canonics, that is, how did we get our Bible in the first place? Where did the books in the Old Testament come from? Where did the books in the New Testament come from? Who decided there be, to be part of the Bible? 
Well, in the back of your ESV study Bible, you have some very nice articles on this, and I suggest you read them. The Bible was inspired by the Spirit. If indeed the Spirit did inspire the Bible, which He did, you would expect that the Spirit-filled church would be able to identify the same voice of the Spirit by which the church was regenerated. And such is the case. Actually, when the councils decided what books would be in the Bible, they were already in the Bible. They were already received by the churches as authoritative words from God. So when the councils decided what books were in the Bible, they were just simply confirming the use of the church uh, across various uh, dioceses uh, throughout the known Christian world. That's the New Testament uh, canon. Uh, And so books like the Gospel of Thomas, uh, the Gospel of Peter, uh, other Gospels, the Gospel of Paul, there are many, many Gospels out there that the Gnostics wrote. They were never considered part of the canon. It was never a debate. And it was not a political issue. It wasn't that one group gained power over another group. It was that they all knew they were like comic books. They, they, they didn't take them seriously. Uh, the Gospels that we have are serious documents written by eyewitnesses or close associates of eyewitnesses of the Lord Jesus Christ. And everyone knew that. So all of this stuff that's been said in recent years about how it was just a political maneuvering that civil uh, authorities and Constantine and all the rest, they're the ones who decided which group in the church to empower, and that orthodoxy was just simply a matter of who was in power. Uh, There were politics involved. There always are. But that's a very cynical way of looking at history, and it's basically rubbish because the Spirit spoke in the Scriptures, and the Spirit inspired the people of God, and they were able to hear His voice. As Jesus said, My sheep hear My voice. I know them. They follow Me. I'll give them eternal life. No one will take them out of My hands. So we hear the voice of God in the Scriptures. The Scriptures are self-attesting, if you want to know the truth. That's what the Westminster Confession of Faith says, and I think it's quite right. And then there's criticism about how do we know what the original text was because we don't have any of the original texts. Of course we don't have the original text. We don't have the original text of anything in antiquity. Nothing. Caesar's Gallic Wars, we don't have the originals. We have some copies that are about 10 centuries old, I mean 10 centuries after the event. But in the case of the Scriptures, we have copies that are within 100 years of the original. And we have 5,000 copies of either all of Scripture or part of Scripture. And when you have that many copies, you can compare them to one another and figure out what the original said. There are some disputes about what the original documents actually said, but none of them Uh, pertain to uh, what we would call cardinal doctrines of the faith. Nothing in the Christian faith is at stake in the disputes about uh, what the exact wording was in the original. Sometimes even in the ESV you'll see certain footnotes in fine print about it might have said this or might have said that. And when you look, you'll see none of them have a cardinal doctrine of the faith resting upon them. But in general, we do know uh, what the originals were saying. That's the reason that when Bart Ehrman at UNC, a religion professor there, uh, says that there's no way we can know what the originals were. That is an unbelievably wicked statement. And Bart Ehrman, I'm saying this because he studied under F.F. Bruce, uh, I'm sorry, under Bruce Metzger, who is one of the greatest textual critics in the 20th century at Princeton. And Metzger doesn't teach that. 
And Bart Ehrman learned better than that, and he's still saying it. And the fact is, with all these thousands of copies, we very much know what the original said, and our only disputes are on matters of uh, small matters of wording on a number of texts. So there's a lot of criticism about the text itself. And then, of course, there, is, there are statements about whether the Bible has any claim to authority over any other religious book, and all I can do is encourage you to look at some of these other religious books, and you'll see the difference. We have a book that is written by men who were eyewitnesses, personal, personally experiencing the grace of God and laying their uh, hands on the Lord Jesus Christ, those New Testament authors. We, the, it is a book that is historically accurate. It is a book that tells us about God taking activity in history itself. It's a faithful record of what He's done to redeem us, a faithful record of His promises of the future given to us by the prophets. There's no book like it. When John Wesley was talking about this book, here's the way he put it. He said, I want to know one thing, the way to heaven, how to land safe on that happy shore. God Himself has condescended to teach the way. For this very end, He came from heaven. He hath written it down in a book. Oh, give me that book. At any price, give me the book of God. I have it. Here is knowledge enough for me. Let me be homo unius libri, that is, a man of one book. John Calvin said, We owe to Scripture the same reverence which we owe to God, because it has proceeded from Him alone. And Luther said, God's Word is my rock and anchor. On it I rely, and it remains, for God cannot lie. So everyone who has walked closely with God has heard His voice in the Scriptures. And David is simply saying, I'm aware that God is speaking through me. My question is, are we aware that God is speaking through David to us? So these are God's words. And if you will, leave your finger in 2 Samuel and look with me at a couple of statements and we'll, we'll move on. But let's look at a couple of statements in the New Testament about the Word. Look at 2 Timothy. Uh, this would be page 2342, 2342. 2 Timothy 3.16. And once again, this is Paul's last letter to Timothy. And, and commanding and charging Timothy to guard the good deposit. And what does he say about this good deposit? It's given to us in Scripture. And look at verse 16. All Scripture is breathed out by God. So if you have a uh, KJV, it says inspired by God. But the actual word is it's really expired. It's, it's that the Word of God is being breathed out of God to us. So it's God's breath. It's His voice. That's the nature of Scripture. And look at this. It's profitable. That is, it's useful, and it's meant to be used. For what? For teaching, for reproof, for correction, and for training in righteousness, that the man of God may be competent, equipped for every good work. So we, we not only believe that the Bible is the Word of God, we put it into practice so that we teach it. We use it as the basis of all correction and reproof. We use it as the basis of all of our training of other people. 
training in righteousness. And then turn over a few pages in your Bible to 2 Peter uh, chapter 1, and uh, this would be page 2419 or somewhere around there. Maybe the next page, 2420. And Peter says, knowing this first of all, verse 20, this is 2 Peter 1.20, knowing this first of all, that no prophecy of Scripture comes from someone's own interpretation. So he's saying, Scripture is not given to us merely by David's inclinations or his interpretation. Verse 21, For no prophecy was ever produced by the will of man, but men spoke from God as they were carried along by the Holy Spirit. Men spoke from God, being carried along by the Holy Spirit, so that when we read the Bible, we want to read it as it is, the very Word of God. And this is the reason that sometimes it's not a bad idea to do your devotions each morning on your knees. You're hearing the Word from the King, the God of the universe. So these words are weighty because they're last words, they're David's last words, but primarily because they are God's words. Now let's look at what these words are. These words are wise David was giving wisdom to his sons and to all of Israel. And it's amazing what he said when he summarizes what he wants to say as his last words. Here it is. He says that godly leadership blesses the people. Godly leadership blesses the people. He's going to make a great comparison here between the godly and the wicked. And you know, Jesus often did this. You had the sheep on the right and the goats on the left. You have the narrow gate and the broad gate. One leads to life, one to destruction. And Jesus talks about the wise and the foolish. You look in the Proverbs, you get the same division of the wise and the foolish. And that's the way Solomon teaches, by contrast. And this is a helpful way for us to teach our children and grandchildren, by contrast. This is the way that God teaches. This is the way the world teaches. Look at how they, they function differently and look at the different end to which they come. That's, that's typical biblical teaching. And here David's using the same technique. He starts with the godly. And he says, here's the godly, one who rules justly over men, ruling in the fear of God. Ruling justly. That word there in Hebrew is tzaddik, which means righteously. And the word righteousness basically means to conform to the law of God, to conform to truth. That's righteousness. That's life, that's practice, that's decisions that conform to the will of God revealed in His Word. So a righteous life is a life that conforms to the rule of the Scriptures. That's the reason we need to know the Scriptures. You can't lead a righteous life apart from knowing the Scriptures and the nuances of Scripture and the complications of your life and mine demand that we become men who know the nuances of Scripture so that we can apply it and be righteous men. And righteousness also has to do with being in reconciled relationship with the author of the Scripture, God Himself. So righteousness has to do with being reconciled to God, dealing justly with other men in conformity with the Scriptures. And when David 
defines a godly person here. He says, one who rules justly over men. Now, this applies to us in a number of ways. Anyone here who's a father is one who is ruling over other people. It's important for us to remember that these little people over whom we rule uh, just happen to come on the face of the planet just a little bit after we did. And yes, God used us to bring them into the world, but they're ultimately potential brothers and sisters. And we must treat them with respect. And we must be sure that we apply justice and conformity to the law of God in our households. And a godly man is one who is carefully applying the Word of God truthfully and lovingly in his household. The same for those of us who have responsibilities to manage or to lead people in the workplace. We must be sure that we do this according to the Word of God. And that doesn't just mean telling people the truth. It certainly involves integrity, telling the people the truth, being predictable. But it also involves being just and kind and compassionate with our employees. And when we find the number of multitudes, uh, the, the, I'm sorry, multiples by which executive salaries exceed the salaries of uh, uh, an entry worker, it's absolutely abominable. How can you have a salary that's 200 times more than the salary of entry workers in your workplace? That's what many CEOs have today. A CEO who's, who is ruling justly over men will find ways to spread out the benefits of the profits of that corporation and give it to many people, uh, all the people who are working in his corporation because he loves them and he cares for them. They're like family to him. That's ruling justly over men. If you're in uh, society and civic life, we all have a responsibility for our city in one way or another. You may not be the mayor, you may not be on city council, but you have a vote and you have a voice and you have friends and you have influence. And we want to use our influence consistently for justice to be applied across the board. And when we have 125,000 people who, who were in the old Memphis school system, now 165,000, I guess it is, in the total school system, and it seems that some people with resources seem to have no concern for those in the public school system. That is a lack of justice. It's a lack of God's Word ruling over men. We are those who care about every single kid in Shelby County and beyond. And we have influence over that. You can't just take your kids into account. Your job is not just to provide an education for your children. Your job as a man of God is to see to the best of your ability that every child will have an opportunity to learn. And we exercise our influence to do so. David says, Godly leadership is one who rules justly over men and who encourages others to do the same. And then he says, ruling in the fear of God. What is the fear of God? Solomon, David's son, who received these last words, no doubt, has a lot to say about this. And in Proverbs chapter 1, Solomon begins by saying, the fear of the Lord is the beginning of wisdom. So before he teaches his sons, his princely sons, all of the wisdom that he has for them in the Proverbs, he says, guys, the beginning of everything is the reverence, the fear of the Lord. We don't fear God like an unbeliever who cowers before Him and wants to run from Him and cover Himself and hide from the Lord. It's not that kind of fear. 
It's reverence. It's awe. It's respect. It's adoration. It's worship. It's bowing down before Him. It's acknowledging that there is none like the Lord. So we fear Him. He is a great God. When Isaiah saw the Lord high and lifted up, uh, he said, I'm undone. I'm a man of unclean lips, and I dwell among a people of unclean lips, for my eyes have seen the King. Here was Isaiah, the Billy Graham of Israel. He was completely undone when he had a vision of the Lord because the Lord was so high and lifted up, and Isaiah loved him and adored him. He revered him. Holy, holy, holy is the Lord God Almighty. The whole earth is full of His glory, said the seraphim when they were singing about the Lord. That's a man who is godly, who understands who God is. What does a man look like who fears the Lord? Well, to begin with, he's going to be a humble man. David was sometimes humble, wasn't he? Sometimes he wasn't. But he was quite aware of when he was humble and when he wasn't. But a man who fears the Lord is a man who is humbled. Why is he humbled? Well, he's got three really good reasons. Number one, he's a creature. And a man who fears the Lord realizes God did create me. I was made by the voice of His mouth. I was made by the breath of His mouth. I was made by His hands. I was made from the dust of the ground. That's where I came from. God made me. I belong to somebody else. Secondly, he realizes he's a sinful creature. I was made by Him and then I rebelled against Him. How bad is that? That'll humble anybody when you realize you owe your whole self to the one who made you and you completely rebelled against Him. And then thirdly, a redeemed man is humble because he's been redeemed. He is the turtle on the fence post. He was saved even when he wasn't asking to be saved. God had mercy upon him. So we are creatures, we're sinful creatures, and we're redeemed sinful creatures. We fear the Lord. We have every reason to be humble. A man who fears the Lord is not only humble, but he's obedient. He takes orders. We obey the Word of the Lord. We not only study the Word diligently to know what God wants us to do, but then we hold ourselves accountable to put it into practice. We fear the Lord. We obey Him. We know that He has all power in His hands. What else does a man do who fears the Lord? He trusts completely in God's goodness toward him. We know that we can't create a life for ourselves that is pleasant and comfortable. That's not, if you feel pleasant and comfortable, how long is that going to last? Not very long. Just a moment ago, Gene Cashman comes up to me before he prays and says, how are you feeling? I said, fine. He said, you're a liar. I know you're not feeling all that great. And he says, look, when you get old, you just recover more slowly. I said, thanks, Gene, for the words of encouragement. He says, <laughs> he says well, let me tell you something else. He said, let me tell you something else. The moment you're born, you start to die. You're on your way. I said, thank you, Gene. Those were really encouraging words this morning. Well, they are encouraging words. A man who fears the Lord knows you're just here for a moment and you cannot provide for yourself. You cannot make for yourself a happy life. You have to trust completely in the one who has all of the universe in his hands. And his promises are gold to you because you have nowhere else to go. He has the words of eternal life. So a man who fears the Lord is emptied of himself. And he asked God to fill him. And everything of value that he has or ever hopes to be comes from the Lord. That's a man who fears the Lord. And David says, when one rules justly over men, ruling in the fear of God. And there's not a one of us here who wouldn't want to be ruled by someone who 
fears the Lord. Isn't that what we really would love to have? We'd love to have a mayor, a governor, a president, senators, congressmen, judges on the bench who fear the Lord. Would that not solve most of our problems? And here's what David says in verse 4. Here's what happens when you have men who fear the Lord, who are ruling. He dawns on them, that is on Israel, like the morning light. So all of a sudden now, we have light. We have knowledge. We have wisdom. When we have people leading our families, people leading the sessions and deacon boards of our churches, and people leading our businesses who fear the Lord, light, wisdom dawns on everybody. It's amazing how the light turns on when you've got a man, a godly man who leads. Notice secondly in verse 4, it's like the sun shining forth on a cloudless morning. That is, there's warmth. The sun warms up everything on a cloudless morning. You can feel the sun and the coolness of the night and the chills of the evening hours begin to evaporate as the warmth of the sun comes. It's the same way when you have a godly man leading a home. There's warmth in that home. There's a sense of belonging. There's a sense of purpose. There's a sense of being valued. There's a sense of love and compassion that goes in any society where a man is ruling in the fear of God. Notice thirdly, like rain that makes grass to sprout from the earth. The rain comes so that people are fed and they have a sense of purpose and development. People are growing under godly leadership. You know, I was looking in Time magazine this week and they have the 100 most influential leaders in the world. Uh, You know, people like Vladimir Putin and some others. And I'm thinking, yeah, these people are influencing us, but most of them are not influencing us in the right direction. How would it be if Time Magazine gave us the 100 most influential people and every single one of them were godly leaders? Would that not just change the world? Of course it would. Well, you and I may not be able to change the world like those influential people can, but we can change the world that we live in. And that's how it gets changed, is people who will rule justly, rule according to righteousness, Word of God, and people who fear the Lord. And then it's like light and warmth and sustenance that provides for growth in the community. That's what happens when we take these wise words of leadership into effect. Notice B, that godly leadership, David says, will come from David's house. How much we long for godly leadership in this world? Well, let me tell you, it's on its way. Help is on the way. That's what David is saying. And a godly man who fears the Lord is ready to wait. We're going to serve. We're going to sacrifice. We're going to provide the best godly leadership we can. And then we're going to wait. We're going to wait patiently but eagerly for the Lord to come and resolve things. And here's what David says. For does not my house stand so with God? Now I have to say, I think in the KJV it's just the opposite where David says, but my house didn't stand. But the better translation I think is the one we're given here in the ESV where David is saying, For does not my house stand so with God? For he has made with me an everlasting covenant. David doesn't say, my house stands with God because I've been such a good father. No, he says, my house stands with God because God made a covenant with our house. And that's the way that I feel about my house. I'm grateful for five children who are walking with the Lord. But I tell you what, there's only one reason for that. It's God's covenant and His grace 
toward our children. He has made with me an everlasting covenant. Ordered, or you could translate that, stated in all things and secure. For will He not cause to prosper all my help? And the word here is yesha, or the word salvation. All my salvation and my desire. And is not the name Jesus, Yeshua, salvation? Is it not this very word? And David is saying, my salvation and my desire will be fulfilled in God's covenant. And that fulfillment comes from salvation Himself, the Lord Jesus Christ. Joseph was told by the angel Gabriel, you shall call His name Yeshua, because He shall save His people from their sins. And that's what David is promising here. That one day there will be a Savior, as promised in 2 Samuel chapter 7, 8-19, through 19, through David's house, that will come and take David's throne and will rule forever and ever and ever. And He will be acclaimed by all flesh that will bow down before Him. I noticed this week that uh, President Obama's uh, favorable ratings went way up. It's now 48% for and 47% against. And that's considered to be a major change, a big shift. He's got a 1% margin now on favorability. I think George Bush's numbers were far below that when he left office. Gentlemen, one day, the king who's coming, the president of the cosmos, is going to have 100% conformity and favorability from everybody who's ruled by him because he will rule justly in the fear of God. What a day that's going to be. And we have hope for that day. That's the reason we live and serve with optimism because the whole universe is moving toward the fulfillment of this Davidic promise. David knew it. We should know it too. Now look at the contrast, lastly, with the ungodly. Ungodly leadership curses the people. Well, you can sure see that over and over again, can't you? When people act in ungodly ways, how it ravishes, uh, ravages the people that are under his leadership. And David says, first of all, they're worthless. But worthless men are like thorns that are thrown away, for they cannot be taken with the hand. And I cite here Matthew thirteen seven because there... You plant the good seed, says Jesus. But then in the third soil, the thorns grow up and choke out the seed. Thorns are a thorn in our side. They choke out life. The ungodly just simply are parasites on God's creation and on God's people. And they just seek to choke them out. And so to follow a godless way like Sheba, for example, who is a worthless man in chapter 20 that you studied two weeks ago. Uh, worthless men are useless. That's the very idea. And then notice, secondly, they will be destroyed. But the man who touches them arms himself with iron and the shaft of a spear. In other words, he's saying, even though you can't take these thorns by the hand, you can take them with iron, and they will be taken with iron and with the shaft of a spear, and they are utterly consumed with fire. And you'll find in Isaiah a number of occasions when we are shown that the ungodly are consumed by fire, Jesus says the same thing in Matthew chapter 13 and over and over again in Revelation where the wicked are thrown into the very lake of fire. So here you have a contrast. David's giving on his deathbed. And he's saying to all of us, remember, there's a godly way and there's an ungodly way. The godly way leads to light and warmth and growth and prosperity. The wicked way leads to total destruction by the leader 
and everybody who follows him. And the way of life and light is the way of the word of God, ruling according to justice, to righteousness, the word of God, and in the fear of God, worshipfully, reverently serving. And over here, one who ignores or uh, impugns the very word of God. There is the great contrast in the world, and it's the only thing that matters. It's the only division that matters in life, whether we are walking with God or we are walking away from God. Those were David's last words. We really ought to take them seriously because of who David was, because they were his last words, but most importantly, because they are the very word of God. Let's pray. Father, we thank you this morning for the life you have given us. For all of the godly men and women who have trained us and taught us and loved us, who have set a good example for us, and who have brought great blessing to us, through whom we have experienced the light and warmth of the sun, and through whom we've experienced the prosperity that comes like rain on the grass to cause it to sprout from the earth. And we thank you for these men and women who have so mightily blessed us. Lord, may we leave this room and be those men ourselves today. Men who fear the Lord. Men who rule justly over other people. Men who submit ourselves to the ways of God. Men who wait patiently for the true ruler to come, the Lord Jesus Christ who will rule in justice and in the fear of God. God, help us today for everything within us would rebel against you. But by your Spirit, please fill us, subdue our flesh, bring to life the things that are good and true and holy, and cause us to walk forever in the footsteps of our Lord Jesus Christ, in whose name we pray. Amen.